Hello and welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I'm your host, Dr Paul McConnell, and I'm the chair of the Ethics Scientific Subcommittee of the ESAIC. I'm also I'm an honorary clinical lecturer in the University of Glasgow and a consultant in anaesthesia and intensive care medicine at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Paisley. Now, today we're going to be speaking on the topic, is it futile to talk about futility? And I'm absolutely thrilled to have with me Dr. Sonia Daniel. Um, and Dr. Daniel is the medical law lead for the critical care unit of the University Hospital in Wales. She's a member of the Legal and Ethical Policy Unit of the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine, and she's also the Deputy Renal, uh, Regional Advisor for Training um, in Wales as well. So, Dr. Daniel, Sonia, lovely Hi. to have you here. <laughs> you make me sound very important. You are very important. <laughs> so, I think probably the the easiest way to actually start is to say, Sonia, is it is it futile to talk about futility? Um, so I, I've spoken to you about this before, but I think um, few, some of the uh, definitions and the uh, dialogue surrounding futility are useful when we're, when we're thinking about how we care for patients on intensive care and what, what um, treatments they will accept. However, I think that uh, the word futility itself ha is problematic. Um, so people may be... Um, thinking that I'm quibbling about semantics and being a bit pedantic about um, the use of a word. However, I think it's um, it's something which uh, has an element of value judgment um, associated with it. Um, patients can patients and relatives can take it uh, in. They can be um, find it pejorative. So they can be. Um, oh, I can't think of the word. Uh, insulted by the use of it in that the treatment that we're offering is not worth the time or that the individual is not worth our effort. Um, and it can be a bit of a conversation stopper. So it can be used in the sort of um, sense that I, I, the doctor, feel that this is futile. Therefore, I have pronounced that this is a treatment that's not worth having. Conversation stops there. I mean, it's certainly a very charged word, um, but, you know, does it get the job done? Does it does it sort of encapsulate what we're meaning to say? Or or maybe actually a better way is if you're not going to use the word futile, um, what would you use in its place? Well, I think you need to think about the definitions as to what uh, what you can use in, in place instead. So you've got um, physiological futility when a proposed intervention can't achieve the desired effect it's aiming to have so futility when you think about it is goal orientated or it should be thought of as in relation to a particular goal and it's a bit like mental capacity when you're thinking about it so it's time and goal specific um so and mental capacity is time and decision specific so uh, so physiological futility is, you know, we're trying to introduce an objective test to something in which inherently there will be opinion um, and it's difficult to introduce um, objectivity into this scenario because even as the most uh, virtuous person, you're going to have your own values and, and um, you know, beliefs about something and that will be superimposed on your decision making, regardless of how objective you try to be. Um, so physiological futility. Um, 
I've defined that, but quantitative futility is when the proposed intervention is highly unlikely to achieve the desired effect. Um, so uh, in that sense, uh, I think the definition of that is less than 1% success or has been proposed. Um, uh, I saw a recent Twitter debate about um, CPR in the context of out of hospital cardiac arrest and um, uh, people who are of more advanced age who present with non-shockable rhythms. Um, and there was a graph of 30 day survival and it sharply dropped off with the uh, increasing age. And I think we do have to be, it's very troublesome and, and potentially discriminatory to talk about uh, people's age in relation it's as a sole factor when we're making decisions about someone. But um, there were people using this graph as this is futile. This is the definition of futile. Therefore, we should never um, uh, resuscitate someone who uh, is over 80 and presents with a uh, non-chockable rhythm. I think that's problematic. I think as a, uh, you know, when we're looking at someone who's over 80 who presents with this, there are the medical factors that we've got to look at. So, you know, uh, how likely is this to be successful? How, how um invasive is this but we do have to look at the sort of broader best interest of the patient as well particularly if they're unconscious and able to contribute to decision making we need to think about if they were in this circumstance what would they want so even though we think that something is um not going to uh, have the desired effect we do have to think about the benefits and disbenefits now cpr is a um is an extreme example isn't it mm. but when we think about things like you know, if someone is dying and they want aromatherapy, which is an example that Lady Hale gave in um, in the uh, David James case, actually, you know, it's not going to achieve a um, particular therapeutic benefit. It's not going to improve their outcome or their mortality. But what it will do is provide some comfort or enjoyment or um, a, a therapeutic benefit in terms of well-being rather than a cold hard facts that we like in medicine yeah i i mean i think that's really that is actually really useful and a, a a good place to jump you know further into the debate from there um because you've mentioned a couple of you know sort of key things um so we can't really have an ethics podcast without somebody saying best interests <laughs> yeah. um, at some point in time do you think there's a difference between what your idea of somebody's best interests are versus what the overall best interests are? I mean, I, I'm thinking more, do doctors see best interests differently than how other people see best interests? I think we've, been, as a profession, we've been very criticised quite heavily for having a very narrow view of best interests. So we will think... Um, and I must say, uh, probably earlier in my career, before I uh, started looking properly into best interests, I was probably guilty of that myself, mm -hmm. where you uh, think that the best interest is about, um, uh, you know, how likely are they to get out of ICU? Um, how likely are they to um, achieve uh, coming off a ventilator? You know, the cold, hard medical facts, just thinking too narrowly about the medical best interests. And actually, the other thing is that the focus there is on the clinician, isn't it, rather than the patient, what we think is the likelihood of something. And a lot of medicine and the focus in medicine and the focus in terms of the legal landscape is 
changing towards a more patient-centered approach, which is what, um, again, coming back to, um, you know, the David James case, Lady Hill was um, advocating for there. So there is a really good um, uh, best interest. So you can use all sorts of tools for deciding what someone's best interests are. They use a balance sheet in the courts. There's a there's a quadrangle by Siegler et al. Who um, and in that you've got one quarter of that is about the medical best interest. And you're thinking about the practicalities of all the things that you can offer on intensive care. And then uh, another part of that is the sort of legal landscape, uh, sort of ethical. Um, you know, thinking about the particular problem that this individual has, uh, any guidelines relating to it that you have to take into account. And then other than that, you have to take into things which are uh, encapsulated within, within the Mental Capacity Act 2005. So what the individual's wishes, beliefs, values, you know, and uh, previously stated um, statements of what they would want in the future are. Um, and those can be quite difficult because that part of it is a, you know, um, it's meant to be an objective test, but actually it's very subjective. It depends whether you've had the conversations with those individuals before. It depends whether they've got people to um, represent them. Um, and also it's a bit of an imagination test as well, isn't it? So if, um, you know, if my dad was in the room here with me, what would he be saying about this treatment that he's being offered? Um and then the last part of this um, quadrat, you know, where you're split up into four is um, things like uh, cultural beliefs, religious beliefs, in particular religions, or, uh, you know, there is um, religious law, which takes into account these kinds of decision making as well. So there have been cases where they've been made applications with um, relatives who are of the um Muslim faith who have made applications for uh, Sharia law um, uh, judgments or a fatwa to have, um, you know, outcomes deliberated on and judged within the Islamic faith about um, end of life care decision making. Um, so I particularly like uh, using that structure to so that I take into account everything about the individual when I'm making a best interest decision, but we have been criticised for being too narrow. And when you put it out on it, so the trainees who work with me on the intensive care, you know, know that I draw this on the board and we'll go through it on a regular basis and we'll go through it. And um, you, it's kind of a visual reminder that actually most of the time we only think of one of these four components about someone. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, again, in my own practice, um, you get quite comfortable with the medical best interest part of things that's what that's what you're expert in that's what your training has been geared towards I think the imagination bit is probably I think one of the most difficult and it's not it's, it must be difficult enough for the family because quite often people are in a situation that they've never really considered you know um, and they've got to extrapolate um what their relatives wishes would be from that um, and from a doctor's point of view to try and put yourself in that um, you know scenario you're even one more stepped um, step removed are there any things that can help with the imagination test and how can you guard against making the family feel like they're making the decision um, 
so I think it, it the so answer the first part of the question is it's um situation dependent so when you're you know the best interest decision making that you make there's sort of um three parts to that aren't there there's the the elective decisions you make say about um inserting a tracheostomy and you've got plenty of time to consult and talk to people and make a good job of the best interest conversations that you'd be having and um, you've got sort of urgent um decisions that you've got to make in which say someone is deteriorating you need to decide if you're going to uh, escalate their treatment insert lines or do um uh, instigate renal replacement therapy or something like that and then you've got the emergency ones in which it's life or death so in those circumstances your degree of consultation about best interests may be uh, overlapping with uh, elements of uh, the need to save a life as well so, or, or necessity so there is there are some parts in which actually you know your baseline uh, approach to all situations the baseline is that you respect the sanctity of life and you will err towards saving lives when you've got more time you can then consult about what's going to go on and if i've got more time i will i will go through a formal best interest process in which uh, you know i use that um you know quadrat as a guide i will take them through every part of that and say you know what what did you have any conversations about these kind of things try and remind them about certain circumstances or if there are any family events say their relative suffered a, a similar you know say the individual had mi and cardiogenic shock if their relative had had a similar presentation or if their mum had gone into a nursing home or you know if there were any um family medical events which led to conversations in the pub or whatever about oh I don't think if I had that similar presentation I would want that um whether they've got any diaries or anything like that and then I specifically then uh go through talking about their um religious beliefs and cultural beliefs if there's any sort of you know special things because we've we've got pretty in Cardiff at least we've got a pretty multicultural um population um, so there are um, a lot of cultural differences which we have to take into account and respect when we're um, when we're making best interest decisions, which is um, is both interesting and um, and uh, enlightening, really, because um, learning about how different cultures approach end of life decisions. So I I use that quadrat to to guide my best interest decision i use it to guide me but also to guide um to for guide families with their what we need to talk about i'll also then um write everything down and if the individual is um you know if the individual is able to consent at some point i will share that that documentation with them as well so that they have a record of what's been decided um and then the second part of your question, I can't remember. So actually, so when you've, you've said imaginary, and ultimately you're right, it is an imaginary decision, but the way that you actually approach these things, everyone has such a picture of the person because you've gone through all of this so it, it, thoroughly, that even though we're labelling it imaginary, it's really a, a sort of, educated best guess absolutely i mean some some people approach it in the if joe bloggs was in the room now what would they say and that's mm -hmm. it 
in terms yeah. of their best interests thing that I think because I've got an interest in this and I find it fascinating I probably have a slightly different approach to other people um I don't know what's what's your approach I think mine's is closer to that as well you know it's trying to actually construct and lay out the information you know that you have so that when it comes to any sort of decision making process that it isn't just imaginary it's and it's it's a an educated guess at a hypothetical um, situation and maybe actually as medics that's what we're more comfortable at as because we've taken something that's highly imaginary and we've at least tried to apply some degree of evidence to it albeit not the kind of evidence that we're used to you know with p-values and drug trials and numbers but building up a sort of story from the person of the person I really enjoy these meetings where um, you sit down with the family and find out more about the individual, because um, particularly during COVID, people got depersonalised. Yeah. Um, and were, you know, it, because people had the same presentation, were receiving the same treatments, were likely mostly prone. You never saw their face half the time, did you? Um, I think when you sit down and have these best interest conversations, you find more about the individual and you know their history and what their beliefs are they I really enjoy that because it really reminds me of who the person is that we're looking after and that's our goal at the end of the day is to improve people's lives rather than to just you know deal with numbers of facts and um, cold hard uh, ICU treatments. Yeah I think that's it I think that's where you know medicine becomes the science of humanity almost mm. at that point in time, um, is not losing sight of the person that's there um, in front of you, you know, and it can be kind of difficult because your career's gone, you know, in one direction, learning all about physiology and pharmacology. Um, and at these moments, it's about being able to bring it back to the person um, in front of you. I, I, I often I, I don't know if I've got the best worst job in the world or the worst best job in the world. I think I, I change in a you know a daily basis, but it's that connection that you um that you have and actually doing this properly, not just saying this is futile and stopping. Yeah. Something which we um which I've introduced on in Cardiff is we've got a ICU specific treatment escalation plan as well. So um, my idea or my hope with that is that we'll get in and, and there's a um, segment on it to to include a statement of what the patient wishes. Mm -hmm. So then before the hope is that, you know, although what 50 percent of people that come to ICU lack capacity at some point, um, you know, uh, we'll be able to get down what their wishes are on this treatment escalation plan and talk to them about what they would and wouldn't accept. Um, so uh, hopefully then we'll be able to, that's only just been introduced, and then uh, we can use that to inform best interest decision-making when they do eventually lack capacity or become you know, unconscious for any reason. So I think that's it. We're not gonna talk about futility, you know, what are we going to talk about from our point of view medically inappropriate or is there something is there another phrase that you would use 
uh, so there's um so in the legal sense there's the the balance between um benefits and disbenefits of a treatment isn't there so we're talking um, not only the the medical benefits but also um you know we were talking about um for example uh, weaning from mechanical ventilation being described as bullying mm -hmm. you know um uh you've got an individual who the benefit of them weaning from mechanical ventilation is their liberation from a machine which would allow them to live their lives and escape the intensive care unit and return to a normal working life. But the burdens are actually, you know, it's it's a painful process. They're made to essentially run a marathon every day. Uh, they've got a bunch, a team of people who, or you can think about it this way, um, who come along and, and bully them every day into doing something and they're told what they're going to be doing. Um, and psychologically, that could be, um, you know, uh, very burdensome and upsetting and can be, um, you know, impact on their well-being. Looking at, you know, examples in the uh cases in medical law that would be Ray B, who, you know, there was um, conflict between the medical team and the patient themselves as to whether they would continue with mechanical ventilation or not, or with weaning. Um, and I think in that terms, you could think about medical appropriateness, but also another term that's been used is proportionality as well, mm -hmm. whether things are a um, appropriate um, or proportionate uh, course of action to take in a certain set of certain circumstances with that individual with those their circumstances and wishes and beliefs and all that stuff so I think when you think about quantitative and qualitative um, futility actually they are inherently linked and combined you can't think of them separately you know they you have to take one but it's with the caveat that actually you need to think about the the qualitative element of futility when you're thinking talking about anything in relation to the going back to the example of the twitter conversation um less than one percent of people survive with this particular presentation therefore it is futile but actually you've got to have that qualitative element when you're thinking about it as well i think that's i think that's an excellent way of putting things and i think the the idea of proportionality um is really key to this because it encompasses both your medical knowledge, but it's proportionate to what? It's proportionate to the person in front of you and their own life and lived in experience as to to what you what they would want. Um, so yeah, I think if I took something away, it would be that not to think about futility, but to think about proportionality. And I can only think about proportionality by properly thinking not just about the medical things that we're doing, but by the person in front of me and that person being both themselves and their wider sphere of influence, their family and all that they've done, you know, to reach this point in, in their life. Time is against us, Sonia. <laughs> um, I mean, I could chat to you um, for hours about this. I think one useful thing to um, for people to look up was you'd mentioned um, James a couple of times. Aintree so, versus James, yeah. Yeah, so Aintree versus James is a UK case that went to the Supreme Court. It's well worth um, Googling that because um, uh, Lady Hale um, really 
goes into making us think about what a treatment actually is um, and what or what isn't futile. Um, but a good, um, sorry to interrupt. Uh, oh. A good um, article on that is the, um, uh, you know, G the Journal of Intensive Care Society covers uh, classic cases within the courts. And um, there's a gentleman called Pyotr Shavarsky. I hope I've pronounced his uh, name correctly. Uh, but he has described the case and is, you know, someone who understands intensive care and has, uh, you know, described it beautifully, I would say, within JICS. Thank you, Sonia. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been great to talk about this really difficult and emotive subject and so heartening to get the chance to talk to somebody who doesn't just have such a wonderful legal and clinical knowledge, but obviously um, has their patients um, and their families at the core of their practice um, as well. Um, thank thank you. you. No, no, thank you. Thank you for everyone for listening to this episode. Um, the ESAIC releases monthly podcasts on the ESAIC website and various streaming platforms. We hope you will join us for the next one.